0: The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. For those that are uh, just tuning in to the talk, this is Ajahn Nasarano from uh, uh, the the Buddha Loka, Buddha Centre here at the Buddhist Buddhist Society of Victoria. And we are streaming live from... Uh, actually from the center here in Melbourne, not from the monastery. So today I'd like to, uh, I was going to talk about impermanence again, because one can talk about impermanence a great deal, as Ajahn, as um, uh, Adrian was saying about Ajahn Covid, because uh, it's teaching us a lot about uncertainty, which is another translation or another experience, how we experience impermanence because impermanence brings up that sense of uncertainty, what to rely on, what to depend on, um, because things are changing. And this has always been the the real situation. However, it's become much more apparent (laughs) with Ajahn Covid, with Covid-19. But I'm not going to talk about that. And my last talk was about harmony. But considering the events of the... uh, The world that we see and you know even here in Australia I've seen a lot of division and disharmony in the world and of course we had uh, last week uh, we had the storming of the capital in the US which is (laughs) significant for the whole world uh, because it impacts on the whole world of course and of course we have here in Australia there's always dissension and division you see quite a lot of it is part of nature it is part of nature it's a natural thing to happen but it's an important thing to deal with wisely, and this is what um, the talk will be about. Because it affects all of us, whether it's in the, at the family level, in the community level that we live in, the community that we live in, you know, the district we live in, whether it's the Buddhist society where we work or we're at school, there can be all these divisions and disharmony, and so it's important how we deal with with that that phenomena which is a natural phenomena and as I was saying for the new year you know people always say have a good happy new year Uh, and uh, in order to make it a good new year or a happy new year we really need to make the mind good (laughs) this is how we can make the year good because if our mind is good if our understanding our wisdom is good and our practice is good then there will be a good year no matter what happens you know and this is this is the benefit of you know the teachings of the buddha it prepares us for whatever comes so that we can deal with it in the best possible way so this is what i will focus on today and when i was thinking about this subject you know this came to mind uh, the Dalai lama of words some uh, a quote from the Dalai Lama came to mind. So of course I had to Google it <laughs> to find the exact the exact wording, but of course the Dalai Lama has said many things on this subject. So you've got a whole choice really. But um, the Dalai Lama said, my religion is very simple. My religion is kindness. And it's, it's a lovely saying, isn't it? I really find that quite powerful. And uh, it is is like saying that the Buddha's teaching, or any teaching, any spiritual teaching, its essence needs to be this kindness. And uh, it was uh, it's something that the the Dalai Lama emphasises a lot. And I remember going to a couple of his talks over the years, many years ago now. One in Perth, in St George's Cathedral, which was years ago. <laughs> and one here in one of the big stadiums i think the the tennis stadium actually i think rod Laber. Well, yes that's right rod Laber, and, uh tennis center and you know you can't help but be impressed by the dalai lama just the quality of uh, you know his peacefulness his kindness his you know all the things that he's talking about are really central human emotions positive emotions that regardless of religion that's one of the things that I like very much you know whether you're a Christian or Buddhist a Muslim whatever you know you could respect this teaching and could get something from it because he's talking about essential human qualities you know when we develop the mind we develop the heart these are essential qualities there's kindness tolerance patience and peace is a big one that he emphasizes And of course, you know, when we say, you know, when he says that uh, his religion is kindness, my religion is kindness, it's really emphasising the fact that principle, the central principle of Buddhism, the whole of it, really focuses on non-harming, avihinksa we called it in Pali, non-harming ourselves, not harming others. So this is a very important aspect of the teachings and of course it brings up you know, this is this is what kindness is, really, not harming ourselves, not harming others. And, of course, uh, we have to start with ourselves, not harming ourselves. And if we realize when we have these negative emotions, we call them unwholesome mind states, negative emotions like anger, greed, jealousy, envy, and lots of desire, and ego, too, is in there as well. <laughs> when we have these, we're actually being incredibly unkind to ourselves because we really suffer when we experience these states these negative states so if we develop a kindness we can as it were address some of these negative states if we develop the tendency to be kind you know this is something we can all do By just repeating, by focusing on being kind, developing more kindness in our speech and our actions, and by repeating it, because this is how we develop our character, our personality. It's not set in concrete. (laughs) It comes from our you know repetition of particular particular emotions, particular actions, particular speech that becomes our habit. And then if we develop this kindness. Uh, within ourselves, when I mean, we'll always be coming well most of the time <laughs> be coming from a good place, and we can't go wrong in our practice if we' are coming from kindness, because then the mind will be in a, a wholesome state, a positive state, and we will experience a lot more happiness in our life and a lot less conflict. So this is how we can condition our our minds with this kindness. So what exactly is kindness? People will have their own take on kindness. Um, of course, in Buddhism, we talk about loving kindness, don't we? This is metta, and uh, I like actually friendliness for that. But, but friendliness is part of kind, uh, kindness too. But I think, uh, I find too, kindness is just being thoughtful, isn't it? When we think of other helping other people, we think of small things. This thoughtfulness it can be very much appreciated. It's like going out of our way. So I think this is this is another aspect. And central to kindness is caring, isn't it? It really is. It's caring for ourselves, caring for others, really caring for ourselves. Sometimes, as I say, when these negative states of mind are running, we're not caring for ourselves, <laughs> we're not looking after ourselves and of course, you know part of kindness too, is having this patience that uh, when we have to um, we encounter situations that we have to just bear with. But patience is very important when we bear with something. we can bear with something by gritting our teeth. And there being a negative state of mind, you know, averse state of mind that says, "Oh, it shouldn't be like this," or we can bear with things with a positive state of mind, with some kindness, loving kindness, knowing that that situation will change. This person who is saying or doing whatever they're saying and doing, they can change as well, and that they're coming. What they're doing and saying is coming from their conditioning, from what they believe at this moment. So, of course, that's uh, important too. And kindness is one of the central qualities of kindness, too, is respect. Respect for the differences. And this is what patience uh, teaches us, too, that we're all different. We're all different, but very similar, actually. (laughs) Different and we feel like we're we're unique, but we're actually very similar. But there are differences and respecting those differences and not necessarily thinking they're wrong <laughs> because, you know, they're coming from a different angle than us. So it's very, one of the things I notice, it's quite hard for us to be aware of when we're, we are not coming from a good place and um, when we're not uh, speaking and acting um, from a good place and thinking from a good place and how can we you know how can we be aware what are the signals that we can pick up um, that can give us a warning that uh, things what we we're saying or doing where we're coming from is not good and I know the simile that occurred to me is that at the, fire, uh, at the uh, Newbury Buddhist Monastery where I'm living we're preparing for the fire season now it's a fire season and this is a terrible time in australia last year you remember how bad the bushfires were and at the during the fire season you have to be prepared so during the rain and all the wind and the fog or mist we get up there i've been working on a fire plan with other monks and nuns i think my goodness you know that's uh, what sort of summer is this but i'm very thankful <laughs> because we need to have a fire drill, actually, before, before the real thing happens. So it's actually quite good. And I think many Australians are quite happy that it's a little bit cooler, this side of the country anyway. But part of that is that we have a checklist for the emergencies when there is a, a fire emergency. For instance, we may only have 30 minutes to leave. And so they recommend the country um, fire um, association. Uh, recommends having a checklist so you can just go through it because when you're in these emergency situations it's easy to panic (laughs) and uh, forget things that are very important. So I was thinking, you know, if we have an emotional checklist, and this is much easier to check up. you know, sometimes uh, in Buddhism we can be very conceptual, we can have a lot of idealism, ideas and so on, but really emotions are the real indicator of what's going on for us you know whether we really are understanding the buddha's teaching whether we're really practicing the buddha's teaching and that's what i like very much about the dalai lama because those qualities he talked about you could see in him and you hear that you know from people who live with the dalai lama that he is like that and this is a very important indicator of really spiritual progress actually is actually one's way of relating to other people relating to ourselves is it kind and so on my checklist I was thinking you know for uh, what what I could check up on is what am i is what i'm doing saying or thinking kind just to check that is very is is a good way to, to decide whether we continue with an action or not is it tolerant and respectful and that's quite useful is it leading to harmony this is also very important in the world and when we as i mentioned during my talk on harmony here on the 27th of december that it doesn't mean harmony doesn't mean we all have to agree on uh, whatever of a, on a particular thing, we can agree to disagree, but respect the other person and their view. And also, is is this uh, what I am doing, uh, saying, or thinking? Peaceful? Is it encouraging peace in me and in the situation? And of course, one of the big ones is: is it wise? <laughs> so there's a lot here, isn't it? It's a big checklist. <laughs> Yes. I, um, with the fire danger? Fire danger. Yes. At the Newbury Buddhist Monastery. Yes. Uh, is, uh, does the monastery need any any assistance? Uh, we we can actually. Uh, we can. Uh, yeah. We always. Uh, Yes, that's always very helpful, actually. And afterwards, we can, we can speak about it because that is an important thing. Because 150 acres and there's lots of grass and the forest is very near. And, uh, so it's a, it's an important thing that we're prepared for the, for the fire season because we're surrounded by forest. You know, to get in and out of the play, out of the monastery is, uh, forest. So we have to be prepared. So, thank you for that. And afterwards, if you would like to, you can speak to me or to Adrian. And, uh, you know, because we have volunteers coming to the monastery and they're helping with grass cutting and all that. And we have somebody who comes and cuts the grass and turns it into hay. So, that helps. (laughs) All those things. So, it's good. And so. uh, we, if we look at this checklist of, um, of things and we can see is something wise. And one of the indicators for me, if something is wise, is whether I'm coming from ego, from self or not. Because when I see ego or self, I think, wow, you know, if I'm going to protect something, I'm arguing because I think this person's contradicting my view or whatever, you know, this is bound to be something that uh, needs to be. Um, aware of and not necessarily acted upon so those things can be a useful checklist you know if we are um, if, if we are finding that mind isn't kind or it isn't uh, it isn't tolerant or isn't disrespectful it's not leading to harmony it's not peaceful and it's not wise then we can if possible, put the brakes on. <laughs> and this is called restraint in uh, uh, the Buddha's teaching. And it's such an important human quality to be able to restrain ourselves when we know something is not good, whether we're saying it or doing it or thinking it, to be able to say, no, I won't say that, I won't do that. I and the thinking, to understand the thinking. That ability to restrain is is incredibly important for us um, for developing the path. So it's called indriya-sangvara. And so it's very, very important, this restraint of the senses. And uh, sometimes we can, you know, think we are practicing well, we're practicing the noble eightfold path well in accordance with the Dhamma, but we may not be, and it's because... Of these defilements that come up, and ego that come up when we are speaking, acting, or even thinking, and uh, oftentimes we catch it later. <laughs> Afterwards, we think, "Oh no, I lost it again." That's all right because at least we're aware that you know we lost it, and so we can, we can next time we can be a little bit prepared be Bit more prepared, we can understand the conditions that gave rise to that. But it reminds me of one of the teachings that I liked very much from Ajahn Jagaro. Do people remember Ajahn Jagaro? Some, the older members will. <laughs> he was the uh, former abbot of Bonyana Monastery, Ajahn Brahm's monastery, and he was from Melbourne. And he used to come here and teach here quite uh, quite a bit. In the, the, uh, and disrobed in the 90s 1995 as i remember but he said many wise things and one of his sayings which i really liked was that uh, we can be right but it can be not good we can be right but it can be not good and um, and he spoke about this quite often. I, th- I thought, actually, it was really coming from Ajahn Chah, and I think it probably did originally come from Ajahn Chah. But um, when I checked, when I looked at Ajahn Chah's teachings, I don't find it quite like Ajahn Jagro used to emphasize it. Do people remember that, who remember Ajahn Jagro's Chow, teaching? Right, but not good. Right, but not good. All right. Because when we think things are right, if we think we're right, we can do say and think anything actually the the limits are off because we can get become what we call we can uh, engage in bring up righteous anger and this is it's more of a christian concept you know righteous anger because the buddha would say there's nothing righteous about being angry <laughs> and of course that's the, that that is the case it's it's a defilement regardless of the fact of whether we are right or not you know and so this is uh this is something that when we uh we and when we have this righteous anger you know and i think many people probably have ex- have their own personal experience of it we can do and say things that are harmful for ourselves and others as well and uh and I'm sure that many of the people who stormed the Capitol last week in the US, in Washington, um, and had this sort of riot or insurrection, they're calling it. And I'm sure they felt entirely right, <laughs> amazingly, they felt entirely right and that they were entitled to be angry at what they were, what was happening and thought they were doing a good thing and maybe even thinking they were saving democracy. Of course other people don't agree with that but that i'm sure they thought that and uh, but when we have this uh, feeling that we are right or when we think we are right i always say it's danger sign danger beware beware be careful because then as i say we can do almost anything and uh, i wanted to tell an ajanchar's story today because Yesterday? Do you remember what yesterday was? It was the 29th uh, anniversary of Ajahn Chah's passing away in 1992. And I think most people know who Ajahn Chah was. He was an incredibly wise uh, meditation teacher in uh, Thailand. And uh, so he he's very well known for his wisdom. And the, it's sort of amazing wisdom that is so simple but goes to the heart. It's incredibly um compelling and uh, the teaching his teaching has affected so many people worldwide. He has so many followers worldwide, whether they be monks, nuns, lay men or lay women, there's so many of them. And so it's amazing for somebody who is from a, a small village in the out of out of the back of beyond in Thailand. Um Bunwai? No, it's called P What Papong is his monastery. So and it's a one person can have such an effect for good in the world. But the story that I, was, uh, I came across was from Ajahn Amaro remembers. It must be via Ajahn Sumedho. And it's from a talk called Not Holding Two Fixed Views. For those who uh, recognize that phrase, it's a translation of from the Metta Sutta, the, the Buddha's words on loving kindness, which we just par- chanted in Pali. So... And this story concerns Ajahn Samadu when he was a young monk at Ajahn Chah's monastery, Wat Pa He was only two or three years as a monk. And he was uh, very uh, diligent, very idealistic, and uh, he took the monastic life, uh, the training in the monastery, very seriously. And he'd grown up, of course, in America where we have the idea of some things are, are right and some things are wrong, you know. There's a very very strong idea of it. And there was a, a monk who was slightly more senior to him, a Thai monk actually, and very unusually this Thai monk, this not not common I would think, uh, was very loud-mouthed, outspoken and unrestrained about what he said. And it used to be a great, uh, it used to annoy uh, the other monks and particularly Ajahn Samadho. It's, uh, if you know um, Thailand or if you know Asia, Sri Lanka, you know this. It's very unusual to have someone like this in a monastery, actually. And uh, Ajahn Samhita, uh, he thought, this is totally out of order. Why isn't Ajahn Chah saying anything? This is ridiculous. Somebody ought to get up and if somebody doesn't say something, I will. Sound familiar? I <laughs> think it's very Western. <laughs> Very <laughs> And so, the next opportunity—this was after months and probably almost a year or two years of this going on—he uh, brought it up at a meeting of the, all the monks. You know, we had fortnightly; we get together and have a meeting for the reciting of the monks' rules. And he brought it up, and he gave all the evidence, and everybody agreed. You know, it was totally right what he said; <laughs> it was true. Yeah. Yeah, he was like this, and you know, everybody suffered from it. But after that meeting, uh, that meeting, Ajahn Chah wasn't there. He was out of the monastery. And so uh, after that meeting, that monk that uh, Ajahn Sumedho talked about was so shamed in public that he left the monastery and never came back. And um, then when Ajahn uh, Chah returned to the monastery, a few days later, he came back. And of course, he heard what had happened. Because these sort of confrontations, you know, it's very unusual in Asia to have big confrontations. It's not so unusual in the West. <laughs> but <laughs> but in, in Asia, it's very, you know, they avoid it like the plague. And uh, so he spoke to Ajahn um, Samedo then. And uh, he said this, which is a really nice thing, actually. You know Tan Semedo, that's like venerable in Thai. It's not an Ajahn yet. He wasn't then. What you said about the loud mouth monk, you did, well, when you spoke about the loud, uh, loud mouth monk, you did something very harmful there. You meant well, but what you did was harmful because even though, and this is evidently a translation of the Thai, his mouth is bad, his heart is good. <laughs> this is that monk. I knew that. Of course, everyone knows that. But how many monasteries do you think the fellow had to leave before he came here? This was the one place where he could stay in practice because I made space for him. But now you've closed the door on him and you have to take responsibility for that. He can't stay here anymore because you shamed him publicly. And so you have to acknowledge that that was poorly done on your part. You were right, in fact, but wrong in Dhamma. Isn't that an amazing story? You were right, in fact. This monk was very loud-mouthed. Probably most of the other monks would say, maybe the lay people too, obnoxious. <laughs> he didn't know time and place. He would be saying things that uh, he shouldn't say. And, uh, and yes, Ajahn Samedha was right, but as Ajahn Chah said, you were wrong in Dhamma. And the consequences were that he had to leave. But what came, uh, what comes to mind for me, probably for you, of course, is the difference in culture. That's one thing that's very obvious. And uh, also another thing is the kindness of Ajahn Chah, isn't it? That he, he allowed this monk, even though he knew he was, you know, a a thorn in the side of the other monks and uh, was, uh, didn't have good speech. He still allowed him to stay in the monastery because he felt he had potential to develop the path. And you can see, of course, you know, this righteous anger, isn't it? You know, Anjan Samadho no doubt doubt thinking like we might think, you know, if I don't tell him, how can he change? (laughs) And, of course, you tell somebody like that, they can't change, you know. And this is often the way the the only, the the most important, a uh, powerful way to change a person is through kindness. If you're kind to them, then they can hear you. But this is not the way to change uh, somebody. And it's a perfect example of, you know, righteous anger, you know. And it was, you know, he was exactly right. But it, it reminded me, too, of the Christian saying, you know, that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So, Ajahn Sameh thought he was right. And it was going to be good for this monk. <laughs> it's always dangerous when we think something's good for somebody else. <laughs> if it's good for us, that's okay. But good for somebody else, and that's where you know this—it's uh, uh, not a good intention. In actual fact, in Buddhism, we'd say that's a, 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 a wrong intention. Because righteous anger is immediately makes it wrong, because the where he's coming from is from a wrong place, and so that's very important for us to remember uh, about this righteous anger. And I know it's it's very it's it's even more important for people who are activists, because sometimes and I know for myself it's the case. I can get angry and upset, hot under the collar. <laughs> on behalf of a group or a situation that I feel is unjust, you know, and there are many injustices in the world. But in reality, that anger, that uh, indignation, that righteous indignation, is yes, right, this is, you know, shouldn't, uh, this is an injustice. This is the case in, in many situations, but it's coming from the wrong place. And uh, therefore, you know, the effectiveness of it will be reduced, I always remember the story uh, from Quaker days, a Christian group, and a Quaker friend of mine said, "Should they had some, because Quakers are very famous for peace activism, peace activism. They do a lot of good throughout the world. They really do. They do prison reform and many, many, many things, very engaged socially. And Mary told me one day, she said she, there were two peace activists at the uh, at the meeting house, they call it meeting house, the centre, and she said they're the most unpeaceful people she'd met because <laughs> she said are so angry <laughs> and they're so fired up because anger gives us energy, but it's not the sort of energy that's actually very useful for us. In the long run, we get burnt and so do many other people. So this is... Uh, something we can uh, avoid by, through our wisdom, by understanding. And we realize that a lot of this, where this feeling of right comes from, of course, is uh, in Buddhist terms, it's coming from our views, our ditties about th- situations, about ourselves, giving rise to perceptions, giving rise to thinking. So we see this with, you know, say for instance, those, the uh, storming of the capital, these people, their view was that they were defending democracy. Perception was that this was a threat to it. You know, these uh, people were going to um, uh, authorize the new president, and so their thinking and actions came from that. So all these things, you know, we are influenced by our upbringings, other people, the media, and the internet in particular, and hopefully by the Buddha. <laughs> <laughs> That's the good conditioning that we can take on. And also, uh, another fault find, another, um, uh, what I call kindness killer is fault finding, isn't it? We find that very much. It's the opposite of loving kindness, is fault finding. And uh, it's interesting because th- this is a source of disharmony and division in the world. And fault finding, you know, it, It comes from our educational system to a large extent. We are really encouraged to see how things could be better, how they could be improved, what's wrong in whatever we're doing, uh, rather than looking at the whole bigger picture. And this problem can turn into problem solving, which is very useful and uh, at the right time. And if it's uh, used at the right time, it can be very useful. But when we uh, develop this fault-finding, it's like we have myopia. Do you know what myopia is? Short-sightedness. It gives us tunnel vision. You know, I can do it myself. You know, I can look at a, a page of uh, text and very quickly see mistakes <laughs> because that's what my education uh, has developed and uh, encouraged. And uh, we can all do that. But it means that we miss out on the bigger picture. And this is where the loving-kindness, the kindness comes in, the bigger picture. And this is the antidote to it. So we can use this ability to problem-solve, to see what's wrong, but not let it use us so that we start to see what's wrong with ourselves, with society, with everything. I mean, there are problems in society, but we can also look at the bigger picture as well. Look at the pluses in our relationships, in ourselves, in our society. And, and this, uh, again, another, another quote from Ajahn Shah because it's the, it was the Memorial Day yesterday. And he said, it's great, very down to earth. One of my teachers, this is a monk, ate very fast. He made noises as he ate. Yet he told us to eat slowly and mindfully. I used to watch him and get really upset. I suffered, but he didn't. <laughs> I watched I watched the outside. Later I learned. Some people drive very fast but carefully. Others drive slowly and have many accidents. If you watch others at most ten percent of the time and watch yourself ninety percent of the time, your practice is okay so that's a good good um uh, a good good advice for us isn't that interesting And it's, it's also being respectful of the fact that people are different and we we acknowledge that and we can accept that their conditioning is different um and this teacher. Um, that ate very fast and made noises. You know, that was maybe the way he was brought up. And also, maybe he was doing it as a lesson to his students. I don't know. (laughs) It's hard to say, actually. It's interesting about people driving slow and driving fast. But yes, if we watch others 10% of the time and watch ourselves 90% of the time, then our practice is good. Then we'll have kindness too, because we'll be able to see what's going on in our mind. What is the actual situation? And, uh, and as I say, when we are aware of the emotions, they're much easier to see than, say, lots of thoughts. You know, some people, for instance, they think of right view as being a good indicator of whether we're... Uh, We're um, practicing well, but that's much more of a conceptual sort of thing. With the feelings, this is the second stage of the the path, sammasankappa. It's much more obvious. So, and I was going to mention the Buddha's checklist because we have that checklist that I mentioned at the beginning, and I'll also mention just briefly anyway that. Anjan Brahm has this. You probably heard his idea of the peaceometer. Have you heard of this? The peaceometer in meditation. To see how peaceful the mind is, to gauge how peaceful the mind is. Because this is an indicator of if our meditation is settling down, is getting some depth. And so this is something we can use. We can visualize this peaceometer, you know, like the speedometer on the car. We can see whether we're getting more peaceful or less peaceful because one of the indicators that the path is developing and we are, our understanding is developing, the meditation is developing, getting deeper, is that we're becoming more peaceful and less ag- agitated. So it's something we can uh, visualize and it gives us an idea of the state of our emotions, where we're at. And I thought, well, maybe you we could have a kind Kindness ometer or kind ometer, <laughs> you know, just checking how kind we are. The, the big problem in daily life is it's all happening so fast. <laughs> That's where the, the problem is. We catch it later. And I, I thought of too the Buddhist checklist. I'm sure you all know this one from when he's advice to his son, the Venerable Rahula, who must have told a deliberate lie um, and uh, Evidently the lie he told was in the commentaries they they tell us that he was only seven years old. <laughs> he was telling he was telling people that when they asked, is the Buddha here, he'd say, no, no, he's not here. He's not at the monastery, and he was. And sometimes he wasn't there, and he'd say, yes, yes, he's here. <laughs> so he was telling lies, not, not terrible lies, I thought. So the Buddha gave him a fantastic teaching on... Um, reflecting on how we're about to uh, act, speak, or even think. And then during it and then after it to, to analyze what, had, what was going on. And his checklist is, does this lead to harm or benefit? Does it harm me? Does it harm others? Does it harm both of us? Or is there a benefit to me, to to others and both of us? Sometimes that's difficult because, you know, if you think you're right, (laughs) of course, you know, you think you're benefiting the other person. Somebody had to tell them. (laughs) If you didn't tell them, they may go on like that forever. You know, that idea of putting the world right. And is it coming from an unwholesome or wholesome intention or motivation? And so this is what I'm talking about, really, how to look at whether our motivation is wholesome or not. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. That's to me essential because, as I say, the emotions that come up, we can be pretty clear about them. <laughs> the thoughts, well, there can be a spin of some, one sort or another about what's happening, um, but the emotions are very direct. And did this action, speech or thought lead to painful or pleasant results, consequences? So that's the Buddha's way of analysing, and it's such a good checklist actually for morality. Actually, it's really, really good. So I was going to talk more about this right intention or right motivation because that's really the key factor. This is where our emotions um, come up, and. Uh, Probably should be, yes, that's not too bad. So right uh, intention or right motivation is on the second factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. And of course it's coming from right view, samanditi. But sometimes we can think our view is right, but we can certainly see that our uh, emotional uh, response, where we're coming from is not right, which indicates, hang on, The view must can't be right, actually, if I'm coming up with anger, if I'm coming up with irritation, a lot of desire, or if there is um, uh, sort of harming, um, intending to harm others, intending to harm myself, or there is delusion. There's a lot of self running really, really strongly. So these are all indicators. Yep, my view is not right. But they're much easier indicators to see, of whether I'm coming from a good place or not. But, uh, regarding the, the footer, hmm. to lying, hmm. yes, yes. What Sutta was it? That's in the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle-length discourses. And it's uh, usually, I think it's Sutta 61, and it's the advice to Rahula Ambalatika monastery so it's in the middle length discourses it's a it's um bhikkhu B- bodhi's done a translation in english number 61 in that book it's a brown color actually they've got color coded so it's quite good so this uh, this um right right motive at the end is good yeah so this right motivation is very important for how we practice the noble eightfold path because you know if we're getting if, if we notice our motivation is wrong, if there's anger there, if there's a jealousy, envy, um, whatever, um, depression, whatever, it will affect all the rest of the Noble Eightfold Path. If the way we practice the Eightfold Path will be affected because if our intention is wrong, if this motivation where we're coming from is wrong, what we say <laughs> will be of a similar nature. Actually it has to be consistent with a you know, with the anger, the irritation, whatever we're coming up with or strong desires coming up with. And not only will our actions be of that nature, our speech will be of that nature. And it will affect it affects too the way we meditate. So you can actually find there there are people who are very forceful with the meditation, very forceful with the mindfulness, very forceful and, and looking to get from the meditation. And this is actually, you can see, this is not coming from right intention, right motivation, which I'll talk about in, in a little bit more detail, because the, uh, the right motivation is not coming from getting and gaining. It's not coming from ill will. It's not coming from harming. These are the, the basic. It's coming from giving up, um, letting go, as Ajahn Brahm's now calling it, uh, letting go, and from non-ill will. These are things like loving kindness, but not only loving kindness, and non-harming, like compassion. So I'll talk about that in a minute. So when we're have the when we coming from the wrong place, the rest of our practice follows. <laughs> That it will be of a wrong coming from the wrong place. So, and I know uh, you've probably all heard Ajahn Brahm's phrase phrase phrase, phrase it is um, make peace, be kind, be gentle. And this is meant to be the um, right intention or right motivation. Now he's changed uh, the first one to letting go, um, and uh, be kind and be gentle. Because letting go is much more consistent with renunciation, giving up, not looking through our happiness through the, what are we renouncing? It's always, you know, renunciation always sounds, it's interesting, but for most people, you know, in the West, most people uh, find it difficult to, to know what this renunciation is about. It's about looking for our happiness inside, looking for spiritual happiness rather than looking for happiness where we always have looked for it through our senses, through hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting and touching. And so it's, that's what renunciation is about. And when the Buddha left the, the palace, for instance, they call that the great renunciation because he was living in the lap of luxury. He had everything, you know, all the, the best foods, he had a harem. he had musicians, he had everything, you know. Uh, and so many people would say, why leave? <laughs> <laughs> but he also realized that this is not where happiness lies out there, and we all know, you know even people who'd, who are not practicing a spiritual path know in their hearts that happiness is inside. this is where it's coming from. So that's a very important part when we in our motivation, are we trying to get something? Are we trying to whether it be from uh, our senses? from even from the meditation if we're trying to get and gain from a meditation this is not a good motivation and it usually it will lead to quite a bit of dukkha because often we get frustrated <laughs> we don't get what we want and uh, of course renunciation is is uh, uh, an aspect of it is giving to others and uh, and instead thinking about others so this is important and the second aspect of course of um, right intention, right motivation is non-ill will aviapada and of course that's this kindness that I'm talking about today, loving kindness um, it's many uh, positive emotions in, in the Buddha's teaching like joy with other successes, successes or good qualities that's mudita and this is a very great antidote to jealousy and envy and equanimity Um, upeka we call it and this is the emotion i call it emotion actually of acceptance of things as they are at this moment they won't be they can change and they will change (laughs) whether they like it or not but acceptance so it's another emotion patience this patience is this kind um, ability to bear with things that aren't aren't necessarily easy. Thankfulness is another wonderful emotion when we realize there's so much in our lives that is a plus. Uh, And as I said, the fault-finding mind won't won't necessarily see that. It will say, well, this is not right, that's not right. But when we look at the pluses in our lives, there's many more than than the fault-finding mind will admit. And contentment and respect and faith, these are all aspects of... Um, non ill will. And the last, the third aspect of it is non harming, avihinksa. And as I mentioned, kindness, really the central principle, support for kindness is that we're not going to harm ourselves or others. We're going to be kind to ourselves and others. And of course, the principal quality that the Buddha emphasized for this is compassion, karuna. You know, this is really this compassion for ourselves, uh, the difficulties we experience, and the compassion for the difficulties other beings experience. The important thing with compassion is that we we feel with the person, we have empathy with them, but that we don't necessarily suffer with them. As Ayakima used to say, if we suffer with somebody who's already suffering, there are two people suffering now <laughs> instead of one, She <laughs> was very practical. And also we can't help them very much if we're we're suffering along with them. It pretty much disables us. And also the other aspect, which is what Ajahn Brahm has emphasised when he has the saying, let go, be kind, be gentle, is gentleness and softness in our speech and in our actions as well. And in our thoughts particularly towards ourselves and towards others. And again, you know, you have patience as well, respect is important, and equanimity. So we can check, we can check up where we're coming from. And if we haven't, if we're coming from these three aspects of renunciation, letting go, if we're coming from uh, being kind, uh, loving kindness, if we're coming from gentleness, having compassion, no problem <laughs> we're safe uh, so if we're coming from those then we're okay if we're not coming from those then i think we need this restraint to just say hang on hang on <laughs> for a while and then not necessarily act on it and important that we have some practical things that we can do in order to develop kindness in our life and uh, I think you'll probably remember, Uh, I remember it. I I was a bit bit shocked that it was so long ago. In the 1980s, we had this idea of doing random acts of kindness and and senseless beauty. I think it was something like that. There's lots of different permutations of it. But uh, it's a very, I think it's, it's still quite valid, really. Um, And I liked, I saw, I was looking for the sort of the quote on, on these random acts of kindness. And I saw one from Princess Diana. Unbelievable. I didn't know she'd said this, but it says she did. So it was obviously the fashion at the time. And she said, carry out a random act of kindness with no expectation of reward, safe in the knowledge that one day someone might do the same for you. Quite nice, isn't it? That's a nice thing to say, actually. So this is kindness in action. The random acts of kindness, I think one can be actually a little bit more um, structured with it, (laughs) in one's randomness. Because I think the people that we need to uh, show the most random kindness to are the people we live with, the ones we're closest to. You know, if we do it to complete strangers, that's lovely, that's very nice. But... To do it to those with those that that we are very close to is much, much, uh, much, much more beneficial. I feel it's a really it's a plus. So, oh. so this is something we can do. You know, through giving or sharing is probably the, the one of the main modes of of um, doing something every day that is kind through what we do what we say and what we think. And as you might remember from the talk that I gave on harmony, the Buddha emphasizes loving kindness in public and in private through body, through our actions, through our speech and through our mind. And so if we can develop this kindness in those three areas uh, towards our family, our friends, our work colleagues, the people that we go to school with, that is a real, a wonderful uh, act of kindness, and it can be material things or immaterial things. It doesn't have to be, um, it doesn't have to be uh, material things, you know. And uh, I remember somebody told me, I asked them, you know, they were going from the monastery for Christmas with the family, and I said, oh, do you give presents? He said, oh, no, no, we stopped that years ago. <laughs> and in a way, I, I thought, oh, what a shame. <laughs> Because these little things make a difference, actually. And I said, you can always give food, can't you? Something you can eat, you know, because that won't hang around. You don't have to take it back and change it or whatever. (laughs) But there's also immaterial things like a smile and words of encouragement. A kind word can go a long, long way, particularly at the right time. And even, because I get it, I'm sure you get it too, people sharing things on the internet and some of them are very nice. Some of them are very nice. Some things you think, wow, I don't know about that. <laughs> so these are, things, ways that we can develop this kindness. And as I say, particularly important with those that we live with. So that we don't take them for granted. And giving gifts is one of the ways the Buddha recommends for uh, creating a sense of bonding between people. And also keeping the precepts. This is kindness to other people because they know that we won't uh, harm them, you know, we won't lie to them, we won't steal from them, we will not uh, commit sexual misconduct, and we're not taking drugs and alcohol, which may make everything else possible. (laughs) So this is a real gift too, and it's something, it's a kindness. You can see the value of it. It's kind to others and to ourselves. And, of course, kindness is what we're developing through the meditation. This is really... Um, where we can do the reconditioning of the mind, especially if we develop loving kindness, if we develop compassion, joy with others, uh, successes or good qualities, and also um, with equanimity, with acceptance. But, of course, one of the most important places we can develop kindfulness, uh, kind, uh, kindness is, it's giving it away then, <laughs> is in Mindfulness. Because mindfulness, when we're in the present moment, it's not, it's not uh, conditioned so much by the past, what other people said or did, which can bring up anger, irritation, sense of injustice, uh, outrage or whatever. And we're not in, off into the future. We're in the present moment. And the present moment actually is, is a place that's quite, in a sense, neutral. We don't tend to have so much of the negative baggage from the past or the projection of fear and anxiety for, to the future. And Ajahn Ram, of course, he calls this kindfulness. So it's quite nice, isn't it, kindfulness? And it is, really. We're just looking at what the present moment is without a lot of the conditioning from the past. And, of course, I mentioned the other meditations that we can develop. But, of course, one of the big things is to develop our wisdom. That develops kindfulness, too. Because the big support for loving kindness is understanding. Understanding that all beings are of a similar nature. They want this friendliness. They want this happiness in their lives. Understanding that uh, this understanding can help us, actually, uh, in developing more loving kindness. I know Ayakima used to do, interestingly, A loving kindness meditation guided meditation but she also did a contemplation about the qualities that support the understanding of loving kindness because there's a lot of understanding behind it and if our understanding is kind it will be kind if it's real understanding if you really see the nature that people ourselves included we are conditioned phenomena You know, this body and this mind is as it is because of the past, the things that have influenced us, the things that have uh, created the habits that we take to be ourselves, our personalities and so on. And when we understand that and that others are the same nature, we can have a lot of compassion, acceptance for them too because we realize they can't be any different at this moment. They can't be any different than they are. But... They're not set in concrete. They can change. So I'd like to finish off now. I'm going a bit late. So uh, to develop this kindness and to perhaps develop the kindness omita or kind omita in in our actions, in our speech, and in our thoughts particularly. And and it's also uh, for our spiritual development, this is... It will lead to a lot of happiness for us, but it will lead to our development of the path, our spiritual development. It's not in our, uh, and I think it's very true of the world, it's not so much what we achieve, but how we achieve it that's the important issue. You know, and this is always something when we're running a spiritual organization. Worldly organizations don't work on that principle, <laughs> they don't think it's not so important. What we achieve, of course, for them that's the most important thing. Um, they're not so much concerned often how they achieve it, but in a spiritual organisation like the Buddhist Society of Victoria, we should be more concerned with how we achieve something rather than if we do get what we were aiming at. It's good if we do, but if if we have actually um, done uh, achieved something. In a good way. That's far, far more important. And we have this saying about the journey being more important <laughs> than the destination. I could say the journey is the destination. Developing these good qualities of mind, this uh, kindness, developing wisdom is the is the goal, is the path. And so we can remember to let go, be kind, be gentle. That's a nice way to rem- to remember these good qualities that we uh, can develop and when we're reminded of things it really means that it can come up for us and i'd like to end with another quote from the dalai lama and it is be kind whenever possible and he says it's always possible (laughs) isn't that great i like i like that very very good it's lovely actually it goes right to the heart so simple it goes to the heart And that's, I think, the important thing. We can tell where the heart is. You know, the mind, well, there may be all different spins and stories that we tell about whatever we're doing, what others are doing, but we can tell from the heart where we're coming from. And that's the most important aspect of the spiritual path and the spiritual journey. So thank you for listening today. And um, I've gone a little long, but now if there are any questions, complaints or comments, you're welcome to uh, to make them now. That's what you say, you've been too kind. If anyone does have a
1: question, they please
0: come up and
2: use the microphone so everyone can All
0: right. Uh, thank you, Arjan. Yes? I
2: just had a question uh, going back to the story with Arjan Cha and that yeah, monk yeah. who um, he raised his concerns about that uh, other monk yes, yes could he have not done it in a more wholesome kind way but still i don't know uh let his like raise the concerns
0: yeah 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 I was I, yes that's an interesting could that monk uh arjonson may have raised that his concerns about that uh, loud-mouthed monk um, in a different way that would have been uh, more uh, constructive, yeah. I, th- I think given the the culture, I would say not directly. That's, uh, I think it would have to be some indirect method. I'm not sure how that would be. The most obvious one is for Ajahn Chah to speak to that monk. And even you know you hear, I know Ajahn Brahm says it all the time in the monastery. If you've got a big problem with somebody, tell me. <laughs> I'll deal with them. Don't tell them off. <laughs> I'll tell. Them. And then he doesn't. <laughs> then he doesn't. So this is quite interesting, but it throws it back to the person because really, in the in the the whole of the spiritual path, is looking at where we're coming from, and so for what Ajahn Chah was really doing Ajahn Sumedha was telling him, look where you're coming from, you know. And yes, you were right, but what you said was not good. It wasn't good in the Dhamma. And that's, that's the most important thing for us. You know, it had the negative, it wasn't good where he was coming from because of righteous anger, and the result wasn't good either because that monk left. And according to Ajahn Chah, where could he go? Most other monasteries throw him out too. <laughs> Quite interesting, isn't it? Was, he, was, he, was it his intention to leave or was he. No, he left because he felt ashamed. He was really upset. No, he didn't want to leave, but because, you know, uh, Ajahn Samadho had said. How uh, how terrible his verbal conduct was! How the way he was speaking in the monastery, and what he was saying, and all that sort of thing. He was so embarrassed that he left. in In the West, it would be more um, it would be a problem, but it wouldn't be it wouldn't be so embarrassing that uh, say a monk would have to leave. We'd say in the West, we'd probably say, "Oh, it's just your opinion." <laughs> But all the rest of the, the monks haven't agreed with him. So I think thank you for that question. And I think, uh, in that, as I said, I think the only way he could have done it is some indirect way, indirect way. Often the way a teacher does it uh, is if they can mirror what the person's doing and then the other person can see it and then they may get the message. But they have to do it with a lot of loving kindness because any Sort of fault finding, negativity, it sets up an immediate resistance from the person you're trying to help. So, thank you for that. That's 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 a good, good reflection. Yeah, you wonder. <laughs> yes. Oh, hello, Dr. Chaya. Hello. On the same topic, uh, mm. there are a couple
1: of things to learn from that particular episode. but uh, I say?
0: Yeah, good. Uh, the uh, Buddha always uh, said in many discourses that don't judge, because we yeah. are not in a position to judge. So these monks uh, may have judged that this person is uh, not practicing, he is not up to the mark. So that's the judgment that they would have been wrong. Yes. Uh, I knew it, but the monks didn't know it.
1: Mm. Yes, other please.
0: thing is that uh, they acted because it was hindrance for them, because he was uh, upsetting the other monks. So yes. it's a selfish behavior. But... Probably if they were a bit wiser, they could have used that to practice patience and understand the person, yeah. rather than acting like that. Yes, that's very true. And the, that was one of the big teachings of Ajahn Chah, wasn't it? Patient endurance, you know, to yeah. to be able to be patient with, with situations and people that uh, are not necessarily the way we would like them, you know. We find unpleasant. Mm, So that's good. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's good. So yes, that's. And I think that was probably part of the lesson that uh, Ajahn Sumedha got is that to be patient with people, uh, be patient with himself, be patient with people, and also to realise that uh, a different culture. You know, you address things differently. In the West, we're much, much more confrontational, and that can have its benefits and its also its drawbacks as well. So it's a, it's a matter of culture as well. So time and place is a very much a teaching too that he would have got from that, you know, that this wasn't <laughs> wasn't the right place to to do that. So is there any more questions before we go? Oh, there's one there. Ah, there we are. I can't see who it is. Hello.
2: Hi John, it's yeah. uh
0: Stephen. <coughs> Oh, hi Steve. Yeah.
2: Um I just had a uh, two questions actually. First one is that um, my life has become a lot more busier lately since I recently just started studying again. Mm-hmm. And um, I've noticed that <coughs> with a lot of the extra stress, it's mm-hmm. becoming a lot harder to guard against things like getting angry or agitated with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, uh, when I'm particularly tired and I'm, I'm not getting as much sleep as I was it's harder to um, not be tempted into breaking the precepts like gossiping or maybe drinking a bit too much. Uh, That's my first question. The second question is a bit more of a general one. Um, Mm. With the precept in regards to alcohol in particular, Mm. I know Mm. that when um, I took the precepts with you, it was like... uh, to abstain from um, consuming alcohol to the point where you become heedless, but just from reading uh, like Bhikkhu Bodhi's translations mm-hmm. of the Buddhist teachings, he seemed a bit like. Elect- the buddha seemed a bit more explicit about no you shouldn't drink alcohol at all mm, uh, mm. so I'm just wondering of your opinion on that as well yeah yeah
0: no that's thank you for that steve yes yes because uh yes stress and um when we're tired does make it difficult for us to we're more reactive actually you notice that we're more reactive and uh, the buddha of, often mentioned that there we when we experience a uh, dukkha stress is dukkha <laughs> the dukkha is suffering or unsatisfactoriness, when we experience that, then the tendency for us is to look for happiness. And it's the happiness of the five senses. So, you know, I think in COVID times, people have put on a lot of weight. Some people have put on a lot of weight. Some people have been drinking a lot more and so on. Because this is a reaction to what the Buddha would call unpleasant feeling Duke of Adena coming from the mind actually it's really coming from the mind and because of that looking for some happiness uh, out in the world so that is it is quite natural if we're stressed or tired that we will you know react we'll be very much more reactive to things but to keep that in mind and of course kindness to ourselves in that situation is trying to get more sleep um, uh, kindness in in terms of the stress level that we have to have we we may feel just to feel kind to yourself have this sort of looking after yourself like almost like a child in a way is is very very useful you know even even you know like you th- can think well even if i don't get the assignment done if i the exam doesn't go well so what you know <laughs> i'll be kind to myself Instead, you know, we're often being unkind to ourselves by letting the fears, the anxiety, they really can run riot. And yes, it could happen, you know. What if, we say, what if? <laughs> what if, you know, you know, I fail the exam. What if I don't get the assignment in, you know, and, you know, I, I, I lose my place in the university, the college, whatever it is. So what if can really play havoc with us. But the kind, kindness will say to us, say, so we'll say, what if it doesn't happen? <laughs> you know, be kind to myself, you know. And in actual fact, we tend to um, perform much better when we feel ki- we're kind to ourselves. It gives a sense of security, of, of stability, uh, uh, that will be better for our abilities to deal with things. And it's a much more pleasant experience. But it's a part of life, stress is definitely. And uh, so it's, um, you know, du- dukkha, one of the translations of dukkha is stress. So it's a, so it's what we do with that stress that's the important thing, you know. And so the the Buddha's suggestion is seeing that the cause of it is wanting it to be other than it is at this particular moment. And letting go of that wanting, and that's a kind thing to do, uh, then there will be more stability, the reduction in the stress and uh, the unpleasant uh, experience we're having. So this is a you know it's it's really good in a sense you know that we relate our experience to the buddha's teaching the four noble truths we're getting it <laughs> getting it in one ajahn samatha was very big on the four noble truths and it's teaching us all the time actually if we if we're just aware of it so I hope that answers that one and the second one about alcohol yes uh, it is uh, a complete abstinence is the best uh, the best thing with alcohol because or drugs because it's very difficult you know to draw limits you know uh, people think I'll oh, just have a little and then a little gets more and more <laughs> I always remember Andrew Jago said well it would be okay to drink if it was a necessity of life if alcohol was something you requir- the body required you know to function or drugs required to function then perhaps it would be okay but it's not it's not a necessity for life you know and the the important thing with alcohol and drugs is we see the effect the negative effects it can have you know cuz they're pretty obvious in the, you know the news you see it's, it's a big problem for people and when people take alcohol and drugs not everybody's doing this you know it's in the news only it's, uh, some people in some situations you know anything else can happen you know they can kill each other they can steal they can have sexual misconduct very common <laughs> in that context of drinking or taking drugs and also uh, lying can, can happen so we can break all of them quite easily uh, with drinking so no it's a much easier the uh, zero tolerance approach is much easier i think for people you know um, it's just in a society that doesn't that uh, doesn't um, that uh, doesn't, uh, that, uh is so uh, conditioned to accept alcohol and uh, drugs, some drugs, um, that it's difficult because people then think you're a wowser or something like that. <laughs> and you have to be very skillful about that, because there's quite a bit of pressure to drink and so on in certain situations. So, so I hope that. Yeah, thank, you. thank you, Steve. Yeah, very good. And are there any questions? Yes.
1: We do have some online questions, oh, right. yes, yes. So, but I, we're running short of time, so I think we either have time for one detailed answer or, all right. All right. or mm. four brief answers. Or oh,
0: four brief answers, yes, all right. So I'll leave it up cryptic, to you, Ajahn. Cryptic, cryptic answers. I have to say kindness, 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 kind, yes. four times. <laughs> that,
1: that probably is the answer to everything. The first question is from someone who's asked similar questions before but obviously struggling with it. Um, Nobody around me is a Buddhist. How do I keep not discouraged? How Uh do I stay um, motivated when my kindness does not seem to be acknowledged, it's not working, or people um, use me for it? It's used for convenience.
0: Uh Right. Yes, I I hear that actually quite often because people I can still remember in Sri Lanka somebody saying you know but if I have a lot of loving-kindness for everybody they'll use me as a doormat (laughs) you know and I think people have to see the value in this this situation I can see the person's expecting something back and uh, loving-kindness and kindness Uh, if you expect something back we're setting ourselves up for disappointment absolutely you know so I would say kindness or loving kindness is its own reward we have that feeling of happiness having done a good thing having been kind doing a kind act saying something uh, kind comes from a kind mind. So we're experiencing the benefit then then and there. But if we we feel like, well, what's the point? Because they, they didn't say thank you, they didn't appreciate it one bit, or they're taking advantage of me. The mind that thinks that is obviously negative. It's gone negative already. So we have to look what's going on in our own minds. And if other people miss the opportunity to be thankful, to be grateful, to acknowledge what one's done, that's their loss really that's how i feel they've missed out on some happiness from being thankful someone's thought of us done something nice said something nice so i think
1: thank you i think you just answered the second question as well which was how to overcome my practice of meta to some friends who take advantage
0: right yeah that's that's very similar
1: the next question is um A bit of a general one, Um, Namaste, how to practice loving kindness and protect myself from harmful beings. How could the Dalai Lama do that, I wonder?
0: Mm. Well, loving kindness is a protection against harmful beings, really. If you really have loving kindness in your mind, then... uh, that will deal with harmful beings. And in fact, the origin story for the, the Buddha teaching loving kindness was some monks who were living in a forest and they were being disturbed by non-human sort of spirits, spirits that lived in the forest who were, were upset that these monks were invading their space, you know, and so they wanted to get rid of them. So they tried to scare them, make spooky sounds, and and do all sorts of f- things that would drive them out of the forest. And of course, they did. They went and saw the Buddha, and the Buddha said, "Ah, what you need to do is use loving kindness." So they and because obviously, you know, when people are doing these sorts of things, they think, "Get out of here! We don't want you know." You think you you react in a similar way. That's the problem. Actually, we react in a similar way to these beings who wanted to get rid of the monks and so the monks were probably angry with these beings or whatever upset with them and um, and then when they saw the buddha the buddha said no no loving kindness so they came back to that forest according to this story developed loving kindness and then the beings were very happy that these monks were living there in the forest so the way we the states of mind we develop the motivations we develop do, do actually affect other people and that's why you know changing another person's not so easy. But if we change ourselves, it may change the relationship too. Because often, the equation, the balance changes if we change. We can't make the other person change, um, but if we change, it can bring change for them. And I often tell a story of a person in Sri Lanka. She said she hadn't been speaking to her sisters for years. <laughs> But then she changed. She actually she started listening to Ajahn Brahm and, and uh, developing more wisdom and, and loving kindness and so on within herself. And then it changed with her sisters. She was able to start speaking to them again, almost without her organising. It was quite interesting. The dynamic had changed. Something had changed. So that's an important aspect of it. If we have loving kindness, that gives us protection, actually. It's a, it is a protection um, for the mind. And it can affect other beings as well. So hopefully that answered that one.
1: Okay, thank you. There are two more questions, but I'm going to suggest the person who asked about jhanas. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, Do ask that after the meditation session, perhaps tomorrow night instead, um, just just to get through. Because the last question relates to loving kindness, which is on the theme of today. When I am dying, can I practice loving kindness and how can that help my rebirth?
0: Right. Yes. When I'm dying, can I practice loving kindness, and how can that help? Yes, you 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 can. Uh, I think that's uh, that's possible. And the way you can develop loving kindness or practice loving kindness when you're dying is practice it a lot while you're living. You know, before you get to dying. So it's a habit. You know, it's a bit late if you just start, start start just before you're about to to pass from this world. The mind's about to split from the body, as the Buddha would say. The body's going to break up. No, it's, if you develop that habit of loving kindness, that's what will come out. You know, at the, at that time of death, that kindness to those that are around us, because you know they'll probably find it difficult. Uh, that uh, this, you know the body is going to pass away. That the the relationship that they experience with you uh, is going to change, and uh, so this can be it's sort of kindness but also compassion because you know these Brahma Viharas the uh, four divine abidings of uh, loving kindness compassion joy and also equanimity or acceptance they they all uh, come together to a certain extent they all have this aspect of loving kindness but in that case you know you can have compassion for the family the friends who may you know be grieving at that time and 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 certainly if you have loving kindness in the mind there'll be less fear about death and uh, also for those that are nearby they they probably feel a lot happier or feel more at peace with your passing away if you if you go in a very gentle very peaceful way and i know you know for instance when my mother passed away um she'd been in hospital six days and you know i was there with my second eldest brother and his wife and you know she was she was very she was sort of I thought she was sort of unconscious, really, but one of my brothers came earlier, uh, before, just before she had died, and the, the phone went off and their eyes opened. I thought, oh, good, <laughs> someone's still at home. <laughs> and, uh, but she just the breathing just got more and more, slower and, slower and slower and slower, and then just stopped. But it was so peaceful that none of us, my, the three of us, myself, my older brother and his wife, we didn't feel upset. We thought, Fant- oh, I thought, fantastic, what a good way to leave. You know, I thought, this is a good send-off. Not only that, only um, an hour or so later, or maybe less, some monks came and we did some chanting for her. I thought, oh, mum, you've, you've got a lot of merit, a lot of good karma for, for this to happen. So, so that makes it much easier for people if you've got a very... Because loving kindness is peaceful, is, is kind and um, and therefore it will make it easier for others around us too. They, they will be able to accept it much better. So thank you very much and now we can finish off because now nearly 20 to 11, time for the shared meal. Everybody's welcome. And for those who would like to, can we can join in and pay respects to the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha, where this all came from. <laughs> <laughs> but kindness comes from within.